If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 43, and we will be in Isaiah 43, verse 22, through Isaiah 44, verse 23. If that's confusing to you, it's a bit confusing to me as well. Um, But you'll find it there on your notes page, um, there in the bulletin where the text is. And also, uh, again, this week I put an outline uh, in there of kind of where we'll be heading. Um, I know some of you take notes and some of you don't. I, I don't doesn't matter to me either way. <laughs> but if this is helpful, uh, just let me know if it's helpful to have the outline. If you'd rather not have the outline and just have a blank page, let me know that too. It's something new we're kind of, I've been trying. Um, so please let me know your thoughts. Uh, this, this section of Isaiah from uh, 43.22 to 44.23, it runs parallel to the one we looked at last week, revealing the sin of God's people and then the salvation that God can bring, and then talking a little bit about the futility of trusting anything or anyone else and why God alone should be trusted. Um, So these two passages are are sort of mere images of each other. Uh, The difference in emphasis is found in some ways that the the previous section focused more on Judah's need for some sort of national restoration, and here we're more exclusively focused on their need of spiritual restoration. Restoration, And so the parallels to us are much easier to draw in some ways. I would say, if I was going to summarize what's going on in this section, this is how I would say it, that Isaiah is calling us to reject heartless religion and return to the Lord, the only rock. So that's the, the big idea, I think, for this section. Reject heartless religion. Uh, reject um, false religion. Re- reject religion that's disconnected from our hearts. Reject heartless religion and return to the Lord, the only rock, capital R, rock, (laughs) is how it is here in this passage. Uh, Maybe you've had the experience of being fully invested in something, maybe a a sport in high school or, or maybe a hobby that you really enjoyed, only to find yourself sometime later telling a friend, you know, my heart just isn't in it anymore. Sadly, that can happen to us not just with sports or hobbies, but it can happen to us in our walk with the Lord, which has much greater consequences than quitting the high school's t- soccer team does. If we're truly the Lord's, though, we, we, this, this desire for when, when the desire that we have when this feeling comes over us isn't to, to quit following Christ, but to understand how to remember what he has done, how to return to him, and how to, in a new way, rejoice in following and serving him, to to come back to the Lord. For those of us who struggle with being fully devoted to Christ each day, Isaiah is encouraging us, reject heartless religion. Don't just go through the motions and return to the Lord, the only rock. He calls us to remember the Lord, to return to him and to the joy of our salvation. And in helping us get to this place, God's word first describes those wearied by the Lord. Those wearied by the Lord. We see this in verses 43, or in chapter 43, verses 22 through 28. Let me read those as we think about this first point, those wearied by the Lord. 43, beginning in verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought, bought me 
sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. So we see those wearied by the Lord, but we could also say those who weary the Lord, um, according to verse 24. Uh, In the previous section, of Isaiah in Isaiah 43 verses 14 through 21 God says he's going to do a new thing remember he's going to do this new thing for his people in exile and he's going to bring a new exodus that's going to bring them out of Babylon and lead them to declare his praise to live for his glory as he had created them to do yet verse 22 says his people did not call on him so this is what they were supposed to do and yet they did not call on him the focus of verses 22 through 24 is on the, what we might call the cultic practices of Israel. Not, not a, a cult, but cultic. Uh, these are their religious observances. Specifically, this would have been the sacrificing of animals, the burning of incense, the observance of holy days, and the like. And from all we can tell, the, the people of Judah were actually really consistent in these practices when they were in the land. Despite the mixture of of worship to other gods that they were drawn into, they kept these practices. However, while they they kept all of these God-ordained rituals and rules, their outward observances were not connected to their hearts. Like the husband who thinks that a bouquet of flowers will solve the issues in his marriage while he's unwilling to engage in heart-level conversations that are needed to bring restoration, so too we can approach God imagining that all he wants is our religious observance. I came to church, God, what more do you want? We check off our list, right? Read my Bible, say a little prayer, give some money, show up to church, and God should be content, right? But we all know that outward actions disconnected from inward love are meaningless. In fact, displays of affection that are disconnected from true love are almost more hurtful than no love at all. Someone trying to do something just to appease us when their heart is disconnected is almost insulting. If you look at these three verses, 22 through 24, you can see the repetition of the word me in in almost every verse. Well, it's in every verse, but almost in every phrase. It's as if the Lord is saying, I see everything that you're doing, but I also know that your heart's I also see your hearts, and I know that these things are not done for me. You have brought sheep, but you have not brought me your sheep. You have made sacrifices, but they've not been to honor me. The sobering truth we begin to see then in this passage is that when our hearts are disconnected from our acts of worship, it's as if we have not done them at all. When our hearts are disconnected from worship, It's as if we haven't done them at all. Another key word that's found in these verses is that word weary or wearied. In verse 22, Judah is saying to the Lord, we, can you imagine Judah saying this? (laughs) We are weary. We are tired of you and of the worship that you are asking us to bring. 
Have you ever heard this phrase uh, or this sentence, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life? You ever hear that? <laughs> it gets at this idea that, that if we love something, if it brings us joy and satisfaction and our hearts are in it, then it's not a burden to us which is how you can be dragging at work all day long and then come home and be filled with energy for a hobby or a project that you're actually excited about. It's why you neglect some necessary task at home so that you can invest time in, in doing what you love. Israel's weariness with God and the worship of him is revealing their hearts then, isn't it? Or we might say that it's revealing the, the absence of their hearts because they don't want to do what God is asking them to do. So the question we might ask ourselves is, what does a, our weariness, what does your weariness, what does my weariness reveal about my heart? What about walking with Christ is wearisome, wearisome to me? And does that say something about what my worship is like? And yet the Lord, verse 23, tells us that he had no intention of burdening his people, of making them weary. Rather, verse 24, he says that they were burdening him with all of their sins and iniquities. And he, he's, he's saying, God's saying, you think that you're weary. You think you're weary of me. I'm tired of you calling out to me day by day. And I'm tired of getting nothing but heartless religious practices in response to all of my pleading for you to return. That's a harsh accusation, and Judah probably responded like we all do to similar accusations. We get defensive. <laughs> if someone accuses you of something, the immediate thing to do is to get defensive. And so the Lord says in verse 26 that he will gladly argue with them. If they have a case to make, they're welcome to make it. But verse 27, the history of his people, the history of humanity has been one of sin and selfishness. The first father mentioned here uh, could be Adam, could be Abraham, could be Jacob, could be someone else. Ultimately, it really doesn't matter, does it? Because they all sinned. And every mediator of Israel had done the same. Even the best of them, the Noahs and the Abrahams and the Moseses and the Davids, they all fell into sin. And therefore, verse 28 says that judgment from God is coming. So if you feel convicted by heartless religion, we might, we might want to get defensive. And if we want to get defensive and argue for our own righteousness, then we will find ourselves in a never-ending cycle of denial. Yet if we are willing to admit our sin, if we're willing to say that we come from a long line of leavers, a long line of sinners and transgressors who are sinfully wearied by the Lord, and if we will confess that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags and our religious observances are tainted with selfishness, well, then we're on a path towards salvation. Because the Lord is not seeking to burden us with practices that cannot save and laws that we cannot keep. Rather, he longs to save us. He wants to rescue us. He longs to give us new hearts and his very spirit. Isaiah 43, 25 feels out of place. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's almost as if the Lord, in the midst of rebuking his people, can't hold back the fact that he will save and forgive them if they will repent and trust in him. He sees all of his people's sin, and he can't stop loving them and calling out to them. He's like those of us, me included, who when you get a birthday gift and it shows up before the, the birthday, the person, if I get a birthday gift for my kids that I'm supposed to give them later on, and it arrives before their birthday, I just want to give it to them right away. 
I don't want to wait till their birthday. I'm just excited about it. And, and God in his, his desire to show compassion to his people is kind of like that. that. That hint of this redemption is in verse 25 is fully revealed in Isaiah 44, 1 through 5. And this is where we see those trusting in the Lord. We move from those wearied by the Lord to those who are trusting in the Lord in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 44. Hear these beautiful words from Isaiah 44. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. I love that picture. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of the Lord. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Do you remember the opening two words of Isaiah 43.1? After making it clear that Israel was the servant of the Lord in need of salvation, Isaiah began his description of God's loving redemption with the words, but now. And yet again, we are taken from our deep need into the wonders of salvation by those two little words. But now. The description of who Israel is to the Lord is familiar, but don't let it pass you by too quickly. He says they are his chosen ones, his servant who he created and formed. These words remind us of, of God's initiative in salvation. Always, 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 it is the Lord who says, I will save I will wipe out your sins. I will redeem you. He will bring water in the desert of our souls and new life from our dry hearts. He is the one who can restore us to our first love. He promises to pour out his spirit upon us. And as Jesus says, from within us will flow rivers of living water, a promise realized on the, the day of Pentecost that we remember today. Salvation from beginning to end, from calling to glorification, is an act of God. He does it. And if we are to reject heartless religion and we are to rest in the Lord, the rock, it will be because God graciously sprinkles clean water on us and reawakens our hearts. That's a comfort. It's a comfort to know that God can restore us, all of us who are his children, to a place of full devotion to him. I would say to you today, however far away you feel, and no matter how deep the pit of your sin seems, God can find you, and God can save you, and God can restore you. Isaiah reminds us that we are children of Jacob in this passage. Jacob, my servant. Jacob, my servant. I love Jacob as an Old Testament character because he just feels real to me <laughs> in his rebellion and his struggle. We are children of Jacob. We're those who naturally grab at the heels of others. We lie and we deceive and we connive to get what we want. And only when the Lord humbles us by wrestling us to the ground will we turn to him. We are children of the dislocated hip. But he also calls us by this, this name, Jeshurun. You see that in, in verse 2, Jeshurun. It's a, a name from the book of Deuteronomy that means either upright or 
beloved. It's almost like a nickname, a, 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 a name of love that God has for his people. Of course, either meaning, upright or beloved, is surprising in this context where Israel is, is wearied by God. Israel is, is upright. <laughs> Israel is beloved. How is that possible? Well, of course, it's because lo- God's love is not conditioned on us, but it's based on him. It's based on his character. And he will do all that's necessary to make and to keep us as his children. We see this in the restoration of Judah after the exile. We see it more fully in the person of Jesus. We saw in in 43.27 that what we need is we need a better father than Adam or Abraham or Jacob who failed and who fell. We need a perfect mediator who has not sinned against God. And we can provide none of this on our own. So the father sends the son to be the savior of the world. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. Romans 5, 18 to 19 tells us, Therefore, as one trespass, that of Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that of Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He's a better father than Adam ever was. Jesus is also the better mediator. He's the mediator, mediator who does not need to pay for his own sins so he can pay for ours. Hebrews 7, 26 through 27, speaking of Jesus says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, a high priest like Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. God has accomplished our salvation through Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, and he calls us to trust in him alone, to confess our sinfulness, even our false religion and our weariness with the law and what God is asking us to do, and to instead rest on Jesus as Savior and return to him as our Lord and our God. When when we see that, when we see this glorious salvation that God is working for us, and when we know God's unchanging love to us in Christ, we respond in the way described in chapter 44, verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. To take the name of the Lord is to to let it uh, define who we are. And in so doing, we, we say that it is not just our religious sacrifices that are, our, are, that are the Lord's. It's not just my church attendance that's the Lord's. It's not just the time that I spend reading my Bible that is the Lord's. Rather, all that I am is the Lord's. I belong to God. We write on our hands, the Lord's. My brother and sister-in-law celebrated 10 years of marriage this past week. And I had the privilege of officiating that wedding a decade ago. Uh, And just for fun, I went back and I looked at their order of service on my computer because I had it on there, you know. And this is what I said before they exchanged wedding rings. And probably what I've said at any wedding that I've officiated where they exchanged wedding rings. Though small in size, these rings are large in significance. They are made of precious metal, reminding us that love is not cheap or common. Love is precious and costly and may cost us dearly. They are made in a circle, reminding us that love must never come to an end. 
It is continuous throughout all your life together. As you wear these rings, may they be a constant reminder, whether you are together or apart for a moment, of the promises you are making today, a reminder of the value of your love for one another and of the fact that your love will continue on until death. If we who have been saved by Christ through faith are the bride of Christ, then we wear, as it were, an invisible ring. And it says on it, I am the Lord's. His love for us was was costly, so costly that it cost Jesus his life, and so we must be willing to give up our lives for him. His love is one that will never end, and while my hope of salvation is, is based on his perfect faithfulness, I am committed to love the Lord with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength for the rest of my life. If you're a Christian, do you live with that invisible ring on your finger, reminding you of what your name is, reminding you of whose you are, that you are the Lord's. I wonder if we might renew that commitment to the one who has chosen and loved and saved us. If we would just even whisper in our hearts once more, I am the Lord's. You know, this is the only ring I wear. <laughs> it's my wedding ring. It's the only one I... Well, I've, I've worn other ones because this is the third wedding ring that I have. I lost one in the ocean and another one broke, if you can believe it. <laughs> but this is the only one that's on my finger. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking about getting a second one. One that just says the Lord's on it. That reminds me that that's who I am. That I am the Lord's. You know, maybe you have some other practical or tangible way to say to your soul and to say to your heart every day, I am the Lord's. Visible or invisible, however you do it, just remember we are marked by God. We are marked as his people. We belong to him, every bit of us. As we affirm our commitment to the one who saved us, let's just look briefly at some arguments for trusting the Lord. That's in 44, 6 through 20, arguments for trusting the Lord. Or maybe you could say reasons to fully commit to the Lord, reasons to write on our hands and hearts the Lord's. Isaiah shows that that we should look to the Lord alone and not to idols because God is the only rock and in contrast because idols are ridiculous. (laughs) Hear these verses, 44, 6 through 20. Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Just pause there real quick. I don't know if this is an allusion to the Trinity in some ways. Doesn't that look like it's something to think about and discuss later? I saw it this afternoon, and so I can't comment on it. But thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Interesting. We'll go on. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. 
They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it? In a, an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? First, then, in 44, 6 8, we see God is the only rock. God is the only rock. The argument here is simple, so we won't spend a whole lot of time on it, and it's one we've heard over and over in Isaiah. It's that no one is like the Lord. He is the first and he is the last, having always been and never ceasing to be. No one can do what he does, declaring and bringing to pass future events. His people are again called to be his witnesses, de declaring that he alone can work wonders in the world, that he alone is the rock, the rock from which the waters of salvation flow and the rock we can build our lives upon. In contrast, then, in verses 9 through 20, Isaiah makes it clear that idols are ridiculous. I use that word ridiculous because I think Isaiah, in some ways, wants to, us to see the comedy of idols. Now, the fact that idols are ridiculous may seem blatantly obvious to us, but put yourself in Judah's shoes for a moment. All around them are, are nations, nations that do not worship the Lord, that do not worship their rock, and all these nations seem to be stronger than them. They're surrounded by kings and rulers who are conquering nation after nation, and for those reading this prophecy while in exile, it's hard to say to the nation who has conquered you that their gods, and, and this nation conquered you, and they say that their gods helped them do it, and then you look at them and you say, well, our God is greater than your God. Does that make sense? empirically, looking outside, it doesn't make sense. Can you make the connection in your own life? Does it seem at times that the wicked are prospering, as Psalm 73 says? That the ones who ignore God and worship the idols of money and power and sex are winning at life? We can say all we want that their idols are ridiculous, but sometimes, sometimes, it feels like their worship is getting them what we want. 
that their worship of false gods is leading to positive things in their lives. But we all know that appearances can be deceiving. We can be deceived by the circumstances around us that the Lord is losing or that our faith is a waste. And so the Lord here sort of pulls back the curtain to show us how ridiculous all of it is. His description here is supposed to make us laugh. It, it hardly needs explained, but the joke, of course, is that a person is taking wood and making an idol in the image of man and worshiping it. He, he makes the image and then he uses the wood that he is not going to worship as fuel to cook his dinner. Does he really think that this thing that he has made and that he's going to burn half of it, does he think that that God can save him? God reminds us back in verses 6 through 8 that he is the one controlling all things. Correlation does not equal causation, right? Prayer to a false god and a military victory does not mean that that idol is in control and brought the victory. Sin followed by success does not mean anything because God is in control and his purposes are the ones that are coming to pass, not those of false gods. Why was Israel in exile? Because God sent them there, <laughs> not because the idol caused the Babylonians to be victorious. To trust in the idols that we fashion, to trust in anything other than God, is ridiculous. It's laughable. Saying there is no God is no better either. Why? Because according to Scripture, who has said there is no God? It is the fool who says in his heart there is no God. So we laugh at all this, but we laugh at it in the way that we laugh at something because we have done the same thing. If you have left your car's sunroof open and you tell me about it, I will laugh at you because I've done it <laughs> twice. <laughs> it's not a fun experience to have rain. I, I left your, wait a minute, let me clarify that. Left your car's sunroof open in the rain. That's what I was trying to say. Um, have you ever done that? It's not fun. Okay, thank you. I will laugh at you later. <laughs> no, but I did it just recently. That's why it came to mind. So I'll laugh at you. You know how we laugh at things that people do because we've done the exact same thing? Well, we also have compassion, though, for people who have done the same thing. And if we are in Christ, then we see that we're saved by grace. We, we know the foolishness of trusting in idols. We know the foolishness of trusting ourselves. We know that it is ultimately ridiculous. And so we can bluntly expose that ridiculousness to others because we were once trapped in it but we can also compassionately show others the better way of resting on the rock. This word about idols here, it seems, dis it seems very foreign to us, but it's, it's good for our souls. You know why? Because we need to remember how ridiculous idols are, how ridiculous trusting in anything other than the Lord is, so that we will return to him. We are often tempted towards the sinking sand of self-centered worship, but the end of that path is always destruction. And to turn from the Lord and to turn to idols is ridiculous. Isaiah says, don't do it. In light of this, the, this passage and our passage from last week, I think Isaiah lays out exactly how we should respond to these things in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 44. And he says, very simply, remember, return, 
and rejoice. Remember, return, rejoice. If that sounds like something pithy that I came up with, it's not. It's right there in the text. Isaiah's alliterating for us. Listen to these beautiful verses, 21 through 23. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Remember, return, rejoice. Very quickly, remember. Remember what? Remember everything we've been hearing about who we are. Remember that, that we are God's servant, chosen in him to live for his glory that he has formed us and made us and that he will never forget us. Remember that he has blotted out our transgressions. All of our sins have been wiped clean as if they'd been written on a whiteboard and then erased. Like the morning mist, they disappear in the grace of God that's found in Jesus. Remember that you are precious in God's sight. You are honored. You are loved. Remember who you are because of God's power, powerful and gracious work of salvation. Remember that, that that is your core identity. And seeing that and remembering that, return. Return. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance and returning. It is his goodness that allows us to, to come to our senses and to go home to the Father. And seeing how good our Father is, we are called to come back to him joyfully, to reject heartless religion, and return with confidence to the Lord, the only rock who we know will welcome us in with loving arms. And then we can rejoice. Although interestingly here, it's not God's people who are rejoicing in verse 23. It's creation. It's, it's the heavens and the depths and the mountains and the forests and all the trees in them. And they are rejoicing. Why? At the end of verse 23, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and will be glorified in Israel. They're rejoicing because God has redeemed his people. And the salvation of God's people means the restoration and redemption of the world. God will restore all things, and his restoration and setting right of the world flows from the salvation and redemption of his people. The cross means salvation for God's people, and it also means the full and glorious reign of the eternal kingdom of God in all the earth. That's what God is doing. He's making all the sad things come untrue. He's bringing restoration and redemption to the world. So, brothers and sisters, after these two weeks thinking about who we are apart from God, who God is and the salvation he brings and why we should trust in no one but him. Isaiah ends with these, these three things. And he says to us, remember who the Lord is to you. Remember who the Lord is to you in Christ and remember who you are in him. And then reject false worship and the false idols of this world and always be returning to the Lord, coming back to him because he alone can satisfy our souls. And finally, rejoice. Rejoice that God has saved you through Jesus and that one day he will redeem all of creation for his own glory. 
Let's take a moment of silence and we'll reflect on God's word to us. Maybe just reflect on those words of remember and return and rejoice. Maybe reflect on on verse 5 of I am the Lord's and writing on our hands and on our hearts, the Lord's. Uh, But let's just take a few moments and then I will close us in prayer and we'll sing. Father, we are yours. We are yours not because of anything that we have done, but because of what you have done through Christ. We confess, Lord, that often we wander away. We fall into trusting other things, which is just ridiculous, that we would turn and trust in anything other than you. So, Lord, in whatever large or small ways we're returning to you today, saying that that we are defined by the fact that we belong to you, that you have bought us with a price, and that we want to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we can't do that apart from you, so we ask for your help. We ask for it in Christ's name. Amen.